0: Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us that sanctification of the believer is not solely an act of God. The believer must also take certain actions by faith. Today, we see what the believer's responsibilities are.
1: I would like you to turn with me, please, Uh to the book of uh, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, our text is going to be verse number 13, but let's read from verse number 1 to verse 13, it's just a short passage, Uh, and uh, let's see where we can get this morning, I but uh, you follow with me, please, from Romans chapter 6. and reading for verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we, that are dead to sin, live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also may walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also uh, in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and henceforth we should not serve sin. You notice the word destroyed there. It really means to disabled. Okay? It doesn't mean obliterate. Disable the power of sin in our lives. That's what he's talking about there, okay? Verse 7. For he that is dead is free from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For if he... For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, that ye should obey in the lust thereof, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For we, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for we are not under the law, but under grace. For the Christian who has been searching for the biblical answer to solutions to his problems and especially when it comes to this matter of habitual sin. Romans chapter 6 ends that search for the believer. For us in this chapter the Apostle Paul gives the most detailed and exhaustive treatment of how God enables the believer to have victory over habitual sin. You'll notice that Paul is very meticulous but he is meticulous because he wants us to understand the supernatural process by which God has engineered uh, the believer's life in such a way that at conversion, there is a separation between the believer's personality and the reign or the tyranny of sin in his life. I don't have to say to any of you here before you were Christians, you were under the domain and under the reign of sin. Uh, sin said, sick him, and you went after it. Uh, you look back at it now as a believer, and you wonder why you were so dumb and so stupid, and why you made so many silly mistakes. But the reason that, why that is so is simply because you had no real control in your life. You didn't have the life of Christ in you. You didn't have this uh, severance between the sin nature and your personality. It was so intermeshed that you were controlled as a as a person outside of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul explains that this great, miraculous, supernatural work that God has done for the believer is a work of God and especially the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who at the moment of our conversion, he puts us into Christ, into the body of Christ, so that we become so united with him that we share in the benefits of his death and the benefits of his resurrection. This has now become the means whereby the believer can have this victory in Christ. I'm not going to elaborate on that because the Apostle Paul explains this entire process in verses 1 to 10. And what Paul does in the first section of this epistle is he tells you, listen, this is God's part. This is what God has done for you. God has done something in your life that is radical and transformational. You're not the same person you were before you were saved. Something took place in your life that has brought about this ability in you to resist habitual sin. Now here's a question I'd like to ask you this morning. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? That's the question we should all be asking. Is that true of us? Because if it isn't true of us, we haven't experienced what the Bible talks about as far as justifying conversion. It's a reality. Now, sanctification is not just God doing everything for you. There is also a human part in sanctification. God puts you in a position that you no longer have to yield to sin. That sin no longer dominates your life. But you are still a moral responsible creature. So what he wants to do now, even though he has freed you and freed your will so that you no longer have to serve sin and be a slave to sin, he now wants you to exercise the volitional will he has given to you. He has emancipated your will that is no longer in bondage to sin. And now he wants you to act as responsible people and do and obey exactly what he says. You know, it's... Sometimes we sometimes ask the question, why didn't God just make us robots? That we had to do what he says to do. Well, if he did that, we will never be made in the image of God. See? Because God is a moral being and the moral being has the right to make choices. See? And that song's okay for us uh, because um, we, we, we use that as an excuse for you know, well, I am the way I am and I do what I am. and Why didn't God do something so I didn't have to do it? But if we, were to, if we were to transfer that to, say, love, how would you like that one? That you have to love a person and, and marry a person you don't love. See, uh, You put that on that scale, now you begin to understand uh, we can't pick and choose in this matter. God has made us moral beings. So I want to point out to you that while we appreciate what God has done for us in this matter of sanctification, the Apostle Paul uh, lets us know that it is not the exclusive work of God in our lives. There, is, there needs to be a cooperation between the, the man and God. God does his part. No, man is expected to do his part as well. And this is what Paul is talking about here in this chapter. So what Paul does in verses 11 and following... He's calling upon the believer to exercise his faith in the revealed truth he's thought in verse 1 and 10 and act on it, see. And this is what Paul wants. Look, it's important for us to understand that faith is not just a matter of mere intellectual assent or agreement. I agree with that, Pastor. I support that. I accept that. That's not faith. That's not what real biblical faith is. Real biblical faith is here's a truth God reveals to us. God said, now take hold of that truth, accept that truth, consider that truth to be true from me, and act on it. See? In other words, faith is not just a theoretical word, it's an action word. It makes us do something with the truth we've learned. I'm not going to debate with you this morning about that matter. I will only refer you to the book of uh, Hebrews chapter 11 where if you ever doubt the fact that faith is active and not just a passive belief, you read that section, by faith they did this, by faith they did that. It's an active word, not something passive. So what Paul is here telling the believer now, okay, I want you to act on what I've told you to do. So how does faith then respond to this matter. What does faith do? What does God expect from the believer having learned this truth? And Paul said the three things God expects from you. I call them the three R's of sanctification. Okay. First thing that Paul says to the believer, look, you've got to reckon what I've told you as true. Reckon it. And and the word there, by the way, is logismai. And what that word here means is to conclude that this is true, deduce that it is true, be so persuaded that this is true. This is how you have to take it as something to believe as though it is absolutely true. I want to say that faith is reasoning. Our faith is not an unreasonable faith. That's why the Bible says, come now and let us reason together. See, So our faith is not a faith that excludes the capacity to reason. It includes this capacity. Faith acts and what it reveals because faith reasons. Three things about God. That God is truthful, that God is holy, and God is omnipotent. So what he reveals to me is true because he's truthful. What he reveals to me leads me to holiness because he's holy. But not only that, what he reveals to me is possible because he's omnipotent. He has the power that what is revealed to activate in my life. See? That's how faith reasons. See? It's not just mental passivity. It is getting hold of the truth, reasoning about truth and coming to certain conclusions. You know, whatever we find in scripture, once we factor God into it, there's nothing impossible or improbable In scripture. You ever ever thought about it? Once you put God and factor God into anything, God is revealing His Word. Nothing is impossible, nothing is improbable at all. Nothing is incredible. It now we now see that if God says it, it's not only possible, it can happen. See, it is the God factor that completely transforms our thinking in regards to these matters and these truths that God is revealing. So faith in the believer gives confirmation of truth. It gives the assurance of truth. It gives reality of truth. It gives conviction of truth. By the way, that's what Hebrews chapter 1 says. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. You know what that means? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the confirmation. It's like what God says, it's as though you have it in, in, in your hand. It's, like it's substantial. See, That's what faith does. It makes the invisible real. And of course, I might see the oxymoron and say you see the invisible. But that's what faith does. It concretizes what is almost, what cannot be seen. But it makes it so real. And that is why they're so transformative. And then it is the evidence of things not seen. And that word evidence means it's the conviction or the reality of things not seen. That's why faith causes a man to act and this is what Paul is, is trying to ask the believer here to reckon it, have the faith to believe that if God said it is so, it did happen to me. Now, I didn't have the feelings when it happened that I was taken out of Adam and put in Christ. I didn't have the feelings that there was a severance within me. I didn't feel when it happened. But this is something God has done for me. Did you feel this Jesus when he came into your heart? Did you feel the Holy Spirit when he came into your heart? Absolutely not but the transformational change is something you can't explain it's a supernatural work see? and most of you would know that after you became a savior became a believer your whole life became a battleground i think you knew that you want to do something and somebody say uh uh-uh, uh that's wrong you never had that happen before see something has changed in you see it is the supernatural work of god so the first thing Paul says is, number one, you need to reckon it to be so. Second thing, Paul says that the second thing, you need to recognize that even though the reign of sin is over, the battle with sin is not. I repeat, even though the reign of sin is over in your life, the battle with sin is not. This is what Paul talks about. Grace severs the controlling power of sin in your life, in your personality. But it did not eradicate the sin nature that is there. It just, what it did is that it rendered it as as Paul, not the word destroy, it put it out of operation so it could no longer control you. This is what Paul is talking about in this passage. So the monarchical reign of sin has been permanently dismantled, but the problem here is that stubborn old dethroned monarch still tries to reassert himself on the throne of your life where Christ belongs. So there's going to be an ongoing battle with your sin nature. See, eradication is not the answer. You will never ever be perfect in this life. My son was, um, I think there's some kind of a, a chat going on and what's between uh, the several... Believers who are coming together having a chat. It's, it's kind of a non church function, it's where people outside the church are talking. And um, he was telling me about one of my, one of the persons I know in, in Barbados. And um, uh, he, he said, the guy said uh, that you can't be perfect, and he never sinned. said, i just, I'm done with that. <laughs> i done with that too. Any man that makes that kind of a mistake, but either got to be deluded or he's living on another planet. See. Every one of us know that that's not true. See. And, it, and if God has said, by the way that the sin nature was dead, you can't commit sin, we would know one thing, take this Bible and just burn it. See. But he never said that. See. He lets you know that even though the reign and the control and the domination of the sin nature has been broken and severed and dismantled, there's still an ongoing battle this in nature because he tries to re-enthrone himself. And that is my experience that is your experience. See? Anybody here wasn't tempted last week? Or a month ago? A year ago? Anybody at you know? Put your hand up you've your big liar. See, You know that's not true. It's always very much real in this matter. By the way, this is where Second Peter chapter 2 verse 11 comes in. You know what Peter says? He says, Beloved, uh, I write unto you that you abstain from fleshly lust. Which what? War against the soul. <laughs> Peter saying your life is a war zone. And it's all about your soul, your destiny of your soul. And he tells the believer, you know, Beloved, abstain from fleshly lust. Which war not against your flesh, but against your soul. It's designed to destroy your soul. The you, the real you. Peter understood this clearly. Not only Paul, but Peter understood it. But Peter put it in raw words and terms that we understand. That is an ongoing battle in the believer's life. You know, I've asked myself the question, I've been reflecting on this. And forgive me for deviating this morning for just a moment. But I've asked myself, when God saved us, why he just didn't eradicate the sin nature? Why, just, why he left the same nature there? And I understand he, he broke the part of the same nature, but why did he leave it there? And I give some careful thought reflection on this kind of thing. And, and I want to give you my uh, spiritual understanding of this matter. I want to say to you, um, let me give you some reasons why I think this has happened. Number one, I think this is so because God wants to keep us dependent on himself. Man was never meant to be autonomous and independent. God designed that man would depend upon himself. But even when he gave man what we may call independence without sin, even man used that independence to go after uh, his own, live a life without dependence upon God. That's what Adam did. See? So I think the reason why he's left that sin nature is that we have to keep depending on him. Independence is the prerogative of God. It's not the prerogative of man. Man was always designed to be dependent. And I think because of this in nature, we have to keep going back to God again and again. God help me here. God help me here. God help me here. Imagine if you didn't have to do that. Man, you would live your life, pat yourself on your back and consider that you're a giant. See? But that's not how God designed life to be. So I think the whole thing here is about God keeping us in a state of dependence upon him. That we understand that even though he's given us victory and given us power, yet the sin nature is there and we will still go wrong and we still have to come back to him again and again. Come back to him again and again. That's how you keep keep you dependent. Number two, I think he wants to remind us that salvation of grace. Think about that for just a holy God. Okay? A holy God that cannot look upon sin yet redeems me. But what if there was? Uh, what if we came to the feeling that you know we, we have made it, uh, and you know, and, and somehow we are good enough to win God's favor? The fact that all of us feel bad about ourselves—I don't know about you. I'm just telling you right now, as a, as a as a pastor, even as a pastor, I feel very miserable about myself many, many times daily. As a matter of fact, I'm chiding myself, see, even though I know that He has done a great work in my life. Yet at the same time, you fall so short to that level of perfection. Fall so short. And you, you, so therefore, you must have this sense that you're not perfect, you're not there. And, and once you come to the conclusion, if I'm ever going to be saved, it's going to be grace that saved me. Not perfection, not my good life. And I think this is how it's kept to elevate this concept of grace in our, in our lives. Number three, I think as well it keeps the flame of faith alive in us. It helps us now to start looking to God more and more and more. Because when you think you've made progress in your Christian life, you're going five steps forward, guess what happened? Something happened and you go three steps backward. And you say, woe is me. You keep looking to God. I think that's what it does. It keeps faith. It keeps you connected with God by an act of faith. Number four, another reason I think this has happened is because I think it witnesses to the, to the people out there that there could be substantial change in a man's life without expecting perfection. See? I think everybody needs to see that. The unsaved man needs to be given hope that he doesn't have to be perfect to come to God. He has to be shown that even though he's not perfect, he can have a substantial change in his life. And there's hope for him because... We're not saying you've got to be perfect. We're saying that Christ will change you and transform transform your life. But it's not perfection. Now the man out there who is struggling with his problems begin to understand that, hey, I don't have to be perfect. And God can change my life. I think that enables a person to believe and have hope for themselves. And here's another reason I, I thought about it. I think as well by keeping us and keeping the sin nature in us, it creates in us a desire for perfection and heaven. It makes us long for that day when we don't have this drag on our lives, when we don't have all these tendencies to go wrong. We just want to be in a point where we can please God. And we want, we want, we want a future where there is no sin, there's no iniquity, there's holiness, there's righteousness, and we are at peace with God and peace with ourselves. We desire that because we realize we don't have it. So we crave heaven. We crave eternity. We want that ultimate change where we will no longer be uh, in any way influenced by sin. I think that may be true of you because it's certainly true of me as I get older. See, we long for that day when the drag of sin is no longer. A, a, a hindrance to our living and our lives. And here's another one I thought about what, why this. You know, it humbles us, lest we develop a kind of an agor, a, a arrogant snobbery that look down at others who are going through their struggles and their weaknesses. I think that it's very, very, much real. I think as a Christian gets older he should not become more legalistic. He should become more mellow and more tender because he's had enough time to look at his life to see how far, in spite of he's been saved for so many years, yet there's so many areas in his life where he's not reached perfection. He he still has weak points. So when he looks at other people struggling, he's not having this arrogant snobbery that, you know, uh, I I can't, no, We, we sympathize and we feel a sense of their pain and their anguish. And we have a compassion for people who are now struggling in that kind of a situation. And then number seven, it makes us compassionate in understanding human weaknesses and sin's folly. But here's the, the best one, I think, of it. More than anything else, the fact that the sin nature still resides in man and man can still do wrong, even as a believer vindicates the biblical truth that man is a fallen creature. I think that's what it does more than anything else. It shows not only man's depravity, it also shows man's ineptness and helplessness to completely save himself. It shows man his need for God in his life and it vindicates the fact that the fundamental problem with man is not outside of man but within man. It vindicates that and certifies that, etc. And of course, it also shows that responsibility for what we do lies within ourselves and not to be blamed on somebody else because it comes from within us. You remember what Jesus said? Out of the heart comes what? These things. And he lists about nine or ten of the things that come out of the heart. He is saying that's the source. It's not something external to a man, but something internal to a man. When I was at school, they had a professor who was, uh, I think, was dean of men, and his name was Jim Berg. Um, and Mr. Berg is the one that was responsible for students. So when students had a problem, whether with the school or another student or something, they would have to go to him. And Mr. Berg had in his drawer he always had a a, a teapot um, electric teapot with hot water in it and he always kept a bag of tea bags in um, in his drawer. You know why he did that? Because very often when students came to him and complained or whatever they always were blaming other people. I would not have done this if Etc. Cetera, et cetera. So what he would do basically, he would take out the tea bag, he'd drop it in the cup, and then he would pour in the hot water. And as he does that, what his point was this: what came out of the tea bag was in the tea bag. What happened is that the environment, the heat of the environment, is what brought out what was already in there. So it's not the environment. That created the problem. What the environment does, it brought out the problem that was already there. It was already in the person. You see what I'm saying? It was actually a parable every time he did that. But such a profound parable that it brings out for us what our real problem is. See, It has to do with what is on the inside of us. Now, I'm not going to uh, elaborate on that, but the Apostle Paul is letting you know not only do you reckon the truth to be so, but the Apostle Paul has asked you to recognize that even though the the monarchy and the reign of sin in your life is over, the battle with sin nature is not. It's just the reign is over. The monarchy has been dethroned, but this monarchy that's been dethroned is still going to get back on the throne. So you're now saying you're in a war zone. A fight has now begun in your life. So, that brings us to the third thing. And that is our responsibility as believers. And the Apostle Paul uh, tells us uh, what our responsibility is. And he does that by using two imperatives. He says in verse number 12 that we must not allow sin, therefore, to reign in our lives. We, we dealt with that uh, last week. Uh, and I'm not going to spend uh, too much time on that. But what the Apostle Paul is, is saying in that passage, and, and the word by the way there is the word uh, basalua. Uh, let not sin basalua in your life. You know what the word basalua is? It's the word for king or kingly rule and that's what he's saying don't let sin like a king rule in your life that's what he's saying that's what he's telling it's your responsibility not mine God is saying I've done my part I've made it possible for you now to resist this king that's trying to re-enthrone himself in your life I'm not going to absolve you of that responsibility it's your let it not happen it's an imperative in the present tense it's a command I like the way that Kenneth Weiss in his word studies uh, translate this verse and expand on it in terms of what it says in the Greek language. Let me quote how he translates this verse in a more literal biblical uh, Greek way. This is how it should be translated. Stop allowing the sin nature to reign as king in your mortal bodies with a view to obeying it In the sphere of its passionate or lustful desires. Stop it. You know why he's telling these Romans stop it? Because they were saying if grace is what brings salvation, uh, you know, let us sin that grace may abound. And Paul says stop it. Don't think like that. Think of what God has done for you. Stop it. Don't let your body rule you through its desires, the Apostle Paul is saying. Again, we explored that last week and we talked about these uh, lusts and these desires. And uh, I, I talked about that treasonous enemy within you that tries to utilize the, the body to fulfill its lusts. And I'm not going to elaborate on that. What I would say to you as a redeemed believer we should no longer be ruled by our lust and our desires. By the way, anybody here don't have lust? You don't have lust? You at the age where you don't have lust? See? No. It's still there, you know. And they're sleeping. And by the way, by, sometimes you think they're dead. And then suddenly one, they, poof, they just come. But where that came from? He's not dead. He's just sleeping. Waiting for that moment, that precise moment. To spring on you when you least expect. See? And that's why Paul says the reign of sin is over in your life, but the battle with sin is not finished. It's an ongoing battle. See? But we have the capacity not to yield to the desires because we have the divine nature within us, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit within us, we have the resurrection power of God working in our lives. Our will has been made free through our conversion. The old man no longer exists. He's been crucified. The severance between this human nature our personality has been made. And guess what? Paul says grace reigns. The power of grace reigns in our lives. So we've got so much going for us as believers. And that's why I must say to you as a pastor, I am so disappointed and so hurt When I see people who have sat in this ministry. I've been here 19 years. And I've been preaching this word for 19 years. And I've been giving you the word of God. I've not been trying to add human ideology. I'm not preaching politics. I'm not preaching socialism. I'm preaching the word. Then to see people who've been brought up in this ministry and heard the word. uh, Come forward and make decisions and get saved. And then blow blow their lives. There's nothing more painful than that. For a pastor. Because I know what? They didn't have to do it. They chose to do it. It's a matter of the will. Very, very painful. Now, if it hurts me that way, I wonder how much more it hurts God to think he's invested so much in our life, done so much for us, and then we give him a slap in the face and go off and do our own thing, disregarding what he's done for us. It is called base ingratitude, And when gratitude dies in the altar of a man's heart, he's well nigh hopeless. See? We ought to be thankful to God for what he's done in our lives and we, we reciprocate that thanksgiving by living a life that tries to please him and is obedient to him. I think that is true of every single parent in here. You're not asking your son or your daughter to be perfect. But you're asking them not to message the lies and bring a reproach upon the family. See. To, to all the investment you've done in that person's life, but please, please, don't, don't just ruin everything we've done for you, everything we've actually invested in you. See. Go on and be something. Go on and, and make your life something that people can look up to, not to destroy, and not to make people think, well, what kind of appearance she had, what kind of appearance he had. Because they never just blame the individual. They always look at the appearance thinking the parents are responsible see, for those things. I'm saying to you this morning as believers that we have a responsibility. A responsibility not to allow sin to reign in our lives. This is where, by the way, any ideology, any ideology that encourages moral impotence or make humans helpless is alien to New Testament theology. Alien. This is why, by the way, we must condemn and deplore and expose any immoral teaching in the church by any false prophet who gives people the impression that they are so weak they can't live moral lives. By the way, don't, if you know this, the Bible has already predicted that in the last days, there will be people in the pulpit who would encourage people to believe that they can't live morally because they are so weak. Did you know the Bible predicted that? It's there. I want to show you a passage of scripture. Uh, look at 2 Peter chapter 2. And notice that he's talking about false teachers in verse number 1. He said, "But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you." So what happened in the past is going to repeat itself. See, then he says in verse number nine, talking about these same people, "The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment for punishment." But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government or control are presumptuous. See? That's the attitude. The whole man of life is going after the flesh. But who are they outside the church? They're people in the church. False teachers in the church. Look at what it says in verse number 12. But these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak of of, of the things that, uh, that they don't understand as evil. What an amazing statement that is. Now, were I to use that kind of a language uh, today, people would say that the pastor is too belligerent. Right? I mean, to call people brute beasts is a very strong language. But what that may mean is that they have animal passion. They were never regenerated. Their bestial part of them still control them. They're not saved, but they're in the church and they're teaching. But it gets worse than that. Look at um, verse number 14. Having eyes full of what? Adultery. And cannot cease from sin. Beguiling unstable souls. See, so you know what I'm saying there? There will be men in the church who have no control over their sexuality and they are fooling the women in the church, sleeping with the women in the church, all doing it in the name of God. That's where we are today, by the way. Do you know how many men today in the pulpit has fallen into immorality? Google it, and it will shock you. See. Why is this happening? See. Why is it? Because God says that's exactly where we will come to. See. People that will infiltrate the church and see the church as a means of using the females in the church. See, the sad thing that people love it so. Because if the pastor can do that, it gives me a right to do it as well. This is where Paul talks, I mean, uh, Peter talks. And then notice another verse, by the way, that's just as shocking. Look at verse number 18. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them to live in error. What a profound statement that is in this passage they use their oratorical skills, and they mesmerize the people with great speeches, but it's designed disguise to mislead and entrap. Peter talks about this. So I'm saying to you this morning, rather than echo a philosophy of impotence and helplessness as far as the believer is concerned. We have the God-given power to resist sin, James chapter 4, verse 7. We have the God-given power to mortify sin, Romans chapter 8, verse 13. We have the God-given power to flee immorality, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. And we have the God-given uh, right to make no provision for the flesh, Romans chapter 13, verse 14. And we have the, the, the responsibility as believers to put off and put away the old man. You find that in Ephesians four twenty two and Colossians three three. We can do that. God's not going to do that for us. That's our responsibility. And here's my point: of all the people on planet Earth, the people who should be leading the world in terms of morality are, is we, are we? We. See you know why? Because real being moral and treating people moral and treating people right shows we love people. See, That's what morality does. It really shows love for people. See? When you when you meet a woman and you don't meet her with the intent, intent to get under her skirt. You respect her dignity and you want the best for her. That is love. But when you meet her and you are just using words to get at her to get to sleep with her that is not love that is lost so when we have real morality it shows we really love people and care for people but not only that it manifests the character of god See? because god is not only moral he's holy and as he is holy so we're we supposed to be so we should be leading the world in this regard
0: Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us a second responsibility of the believer in sanctification. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gamble's Terrace, Antigua.